0: I know. for I am with thee be not dismayed for I I've held you in the right hand of my right. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Grace here at the Medina East Campus. All of you who are in the room, glad to have you here. And then, like Tracy said as well, if you're joining us on live stream and you're joining us that way, I just want to extend a very special welcome to you. Uh, for those who are watching, wherever you might be watching, we're glad that you're able to be with us. And uh, we are actually in the second week of this six-week series that we are uh, calling Life in Exile. And what we're doing in this series uh, is actually pretty straightforward. We are actually just working our way together through the first six chapters of of one of the most amazing books in the Old Testament of your Bible. It is the book of Daniel. And so we're working together just kind of systematically through the first uh, six chapters of that book. So last week we were in chapter one as we kind of introduced the series. And this week, without wasting any time, I just want to go ahead and get right to it. So if you got your Bible, why don't you open it with me? We're going to go to Daniel chapter two. So Daniel two is we we're going to pick it up. Last week, Daniel one, this week, Daniel chapter two. And uh, if you uh, did not bring a Bible with you here today, you can use one of the ones under the chairs, page 719 is where you'll find Daniel chapter 2. And of course, if you do not own a Bible, if you don't physically own a copy of the Bible, we would so love for you to take one of ours. You can just take that home, make that a gift from us to you. We would love for you to have your own copy of the Bible. So Daniel 2, if you want to meet me there, that's where we're going to go. Now, as you're finding Daniel chapter 2, basically, here's what we said last week. We said that even though this book of the Bible was written nearly 2,600 years ago, so it was written a long time ago, uh, we said that the contents of what you find in the book of Daniel are strikingly relevant to the time and place that we might find ourselves here today. Strikingly relevant, and you might be asking, how so? How is Daniel strikingly relevant to us here today? And I think that maybe the quickest and the best way that I can explain what the book of Daniel is all about is actually with a quick illustration. So. I know when, I, when I've been reading through and studying the book of Daniel, there's this picture that keeps coming to my mind, and and basically it's this. So uh, my kids and I, I got, I got four little kids, my wife and I got four little kids, and one of the things that we like to do, especially when it's really cold outside in the winter months, is we like to go to the Medina Rec Center. Uh, some of you guys know the Medina Rec if you live around here, and we like to swim there, so they got this real big kind of indoor natatorium swimming area. And if you've ever been there, you, you might know that there's this feature that's at the Medina Rec Pool, and I don't know what they call it. I'm not sure what it is, but it's kind of like it's kind of like a lazy river, if you guys know what, know what I mean by that. But to call it a lazy river is it's sort of an exaggeration because it's really not a river at all. It probably looks more like this is actually a picture. This is not from the Medina Rec, but it's the closest thing that I could find. It kind of looks like this. It's just a big. I don't know if they call it like a current. I don't know what they call it, but this is what it is. My kids call it a toilet bowl. That's what they call it, because they just jump in and just kind of swirl around and get flushed down, that kind of thing. So that's what they do. We call it that. But if you guys have ever swam in something like this, or if you ever swam in a, a lazy river or something, you know that it is very, very difficult. It's very challenging to try to stay in one spot. It's very, very hard to do that. Like, if you try to swim and keep yourself in one spot, you can maybe do it for a while, But it takes an immense amount of energy. It takes an immense amount of strength. And over time, eventually, the current is going to take you. After a while, you're just going to end up going with the flow and just kind of following the current of what's happening in uh, kind of that setting. And in a lot of ways, as I've been reading through the book of Daniel, I can just tell you that this is kind of the picture that comes into my mind. Because what do we see in Daniel? Well, like we said, we actually see a group of people. We see uh, Daniel and his friends living in exile. And so here you have these Israelite young men who now find themselves immersed in a different culture. They're in Babylon, they're in exile. And actually you can see the title, we, we, we said the series the subtitle is How to Walk in Resolved Faith When Surrounded by Compromise. And so I think really what you see in Daniel is you see an example of a group of people who are swimming against the current of a society uh, that is pressuring them to conform to a different way of thinking and a different way of living than what their faith instructs them to do. And so really what you see is you see these, these people, Daniel and his friends, who are trying to live out a resolved faithfulness, to remain in one spot in their commitment to God when there is a current that is fighting against that in the culture and the world that they find themselves in. And I think if you can get your head around that a little bit, I think you can see why I believe this is such a strikingly relevant book to the time and place that we find ourselves in today. It's no secret that for those of us who follow Jesus, and by the way, I know that here today not everyone here maybe follows Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating your faith and you're still trying to figure out the God thing and Christianity and all of that. But for those of us who follow Jesus, it is no secret that for the history of Christianity, for for so much of the history of Christianity, what it's been, it has been people of faith who are trying to, to swim upstream in a downstream world that there's a current, there's a current to society that is so many times in opposition to uh, what the faith of the people of God is instructed to live, how they're instructed to live and how they're instructed to navigate through the waters of this life. And I think what you see in Daniel, and this is why I think Daniel is so relevant, what you see in the book of Daniel is you actually see Daniel and his friends live out a lifetime, an entire lifetime of faithful resolve. They remain committed to God for the duration of their entire life. And and really, like we said last week, Daniel actually starts when Daniel and his friends are just teenage young men, and the book ends when they're 70 years old. And so you actually see a lifetime of faithfulness, a lifetime of steadfast faithfulness to God. And the question I think that it causes us to ask is, how did he do that? How did Daniel and how did his friends remain so steadfast in their commitment to God in this time? So that's what we're looking at the book of Daniel here together. And last week, if you are with us, we actually said that Daniel chapter one lets us in on something that happened inside of the heart of Daniel, inside of his heart and inside of his soul, that actually sets the trajectory for the rest of the book of Daniel. And here's what it says. We looked at this last week. Daniel chapter one, verse eight says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. So we're actually told this all the way at the beginning of the book of Daniel, that there was, a, there was an internal decision, there was an internal commitment, there was something that happened in Daniel's heart that actually set the trajectory of the rest of his life. And what was it? We said it's that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. In other words, Daniel resolved that he would be faithful to God. And this is what allowed him in many ways to remain faithful for an entire lifetime. Now, of course, when we read that, I think that causes us to ask a lot of questions. And so one of the questions that we might be asking is, where did Daniel find the strength to be so resolved? How did he find the strength to be resolved for an entire lifetime? And the second question it causes us to ask is, practically speaking, what did it look like for Daniel to live out that resolve in his life? And so I believe that's what the next chapters of Daniel are about. Daniel's one to six show us, practically speaking, how this resolve shows up. In fact, last week, if you were here, you might remember I introduced you to this prayer And I said, this is a prayer that we wrote that actually in a lot of ways serves as an outline of the series, but also serves as an outline of the first six chapters of Daniel. And so the prayer is this, Father in heaven, by your power and grace, help me to be resolved, just like we saw in Daniel chapter one. Resolved to pray as a first response and not a last resort. Resolved to love and obey you no matter the outcome. Resolved to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty. Resolved to walk humbly in an age of pride and resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. And last week what I said is I said this actually is a, a breakdown of everything we're going to be looking at this in this series. It's in a lot of ways, it is an outline of Daniel 1 to 6. But my hope is that this isn't just an outline to our sermon series. My hope and prayer is that this might be the collective prayer of God's people here at the Medina East Campus, that this would reflect our heart set. Uh, as we live in the world that we do. So today what I wanna do is actually wanna zoom in and I wanna talk specifically about this idea of being resolved to pray as a first response and not a last resort. Practically speaking, how did Daniel's resolve play itself out in his life? I think one of the ways that we're gonna see is that it showed up that Daniel was committed to pray as a first response and not a last resort because of his deep commitment and trust in God. So let me show you how this shows up. Let's take a look, Daniel chapter 2, We will jump in starting in verse one. Here's what it says. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. All right, so let me just kind of pause there for just a second. So when you jump into Daniel chapter two, the Bible's gonna say it is now the second year of the reign of this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, last week, if you were with us, uh, we actually introduced you to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a very, very famous historical figure. And uh, just a little bit about him, a little bit more, Uh, we actually know that because this is the second year of his reign, that Nebuchadnezzar probably would have been about 30 years old at this time. So he was about 30 years old. And here's something else we know about Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Nebuchadnezzar would have been the most powerful leader in the known world at that time. And that is no exaggeration. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And Babylon was the mega power of the ancient world at that time. In fact, let me just show you just a picture of the incredible dominion that Nebuchadnezzar had during this time. So this is, uh, I actually just got this off of Google Earth. So this is just a a picture of what is modern day Israel and some of the surrounding areas. So if you were to go back to the 6th century BC and you were to snap a picture of uh, what did Nebuchadnezzar actually rule over, you're going to see that pretty much most of the ancient world was underneath his dominion. It was the mega power of the world. And so the Bible's gonna tell us Nebuchadnezzar was really the most powerful leader at that time in the known world, and yet what's interesting is the Bible tells us right here in verse one that this man could not sleep, that even though he had the whole world, he's at the top of the world, the Bible says that he was troubled and he couldn't sleep. Now, why couldn't he sleep? Well, we're actually told right here, it's because he kept having these dreams. And um, if you keep reading through the text, uh, what you're gonna see is there's indication that it wasn't like he just kept having bad dreams, but it's that he kept having the same dream. He kept having the same dream on repeat, and it was a very troubling dream. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, look what the Bible says. The Bible says, So the king summoned the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers to tell them what he dreamed. And when they came in and they stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. All right, so again, let me just give you a little context to help make sense of what's happening in these verses. So back in the 6th century BC, it was the common worldview of the people back in this time and in this place that they believed that the divine, that the way that the divine, that the way that the gods would communicate with humans was sometimes one of the channels in which they would do that was through dreams. And that was a very, very common belief back in this time. And it was a belief that Nebuchadnezzar would have had as well. And so because of that, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream the first place that he goes is he goes to consult the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers. Now, the, these four classifications of people, these groups that are mentioned to us, this actually would have been a group of advisors to the king. So they would have been hired by the king and they would have been an advisory board. And actually, these four different, uh, these four different titles that you see here would actually sometimes just be called uh, one group of people. They would sometimes be called the wise men or sometimes they would call them the magi. And that actually might, for some of you who are Bible readers, that actually might sound familiar to you. When you think about the magi, or you think about the wise men, maybe you think of the nativity scene, right, where the Bible says that there was magi who came from the east, or there was wise men who came. Interestingly, commentators will point out that it's very possible that those magi and those wise men who are mentioned who came from the east actually found their origins back in the book of Daniel, which I think is really interesting. But anyway, The Bible says he calls these guys in and he says, you need to tell me what my dream means. And so they come and look what it says. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever, which was kind of a standard way that you would approach the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and then we will interpret it for you. So again, this is how it would have worked back in this time. Back in this time, if you wanted your dream to be interpreted, you would go to one of these people, one of these wise men, and you would basically tell them your dream and then they would go on to explain to you what your dream meant. Uh, in fact, I think it's interesting, archaeologists to this day, uh, they keep finding thousands and thousands of these dream interpretive books that were written back in this time. Uh, they keep finding tablets and books that were written. For example, this is actually something they discovered just recently. Uh, they actually discovered this in uh, dates back to 6th century Babylon, which is in the time of Daniel. And this would have been a tablet that was used as a decoder to help interpret dreams. They had thousands of these. And so essentially how it would work was like this. You would have a dream, and then you would go tell your dream to this person, and then they would, they would, they would hear your dream, and then they would like, use one of these tablets, almost like a decoder ring, to tell you what your dream meant. And so like, you would go to the person, you'd be like, I had this dream, and like, I don't know, in my dream there was like a tree or something like that, and in the tree there was a cat, So just, just to say that. And then you would say, what does it mean? And they would say, well, thank you for telling me your dream. Let's go to the tablet. And they would go to the tablets, and they would say, okay, so tree, you know, that, I don't know, that means, like, represents, I don't know, your, like, your house or your home or your dwelling, okay? And then a cat, you know, obviously represents um, Satan. And so you'd be like, so, like, the devil's at your house. I don't know. That's what your dream means. It has a stupid example, but you get what I'm saying, right? So that's how it worked though. That's how it worked. You tell me the dream and I tell you what it means. That's how it worked. But look what Nebuchadnezzar does. Watch what Nebuchadnezzar does. Nebuchadnezzar, the king replied, this is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. Wow. That escalated real quick. So he's like, I'm not telling you my dream. You tell me my dream. If you don't tell me my dream, I'm gonna have you cut up. I'm gonna burn down your house. And then look what he says next. He says this. He says, but if you tell me the dream and you and, and you explain it, then you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Do you see the options that he gives these guys? Tell me the dream, and I'll give you rewards and honor and gifts and buy a pony. Don't tell me the dream. I'm gonna cut you to pieces. I'm gonna burn down your house. I'm gonna stomp on the ashes. And I, I just, I want you, to, by the way, a little side note for, for the rest of this series. Nebuchadnezzar is actually a pretty key character in the book of Daniel. And what you see here is honestly, it's, it's, very, it's very indicative of the kind of person that Nebuchadnezzar is. You're gonna see in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is like bipolar to the max. And he's either, it's black or white. There is no gray with this guy. And so he is serious and he is powerful. And so, so look what the Bible says. That he's like, these are your two options, and they're like. Once more, they were like, King, tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it. They're like, come on, you know how this works. You tell us the dream, we tell you what it is. And the king once again responded to them and said, The king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. He's like, look, there is no option C. There's one choice. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and then, I will, and then I will know that you can interpret it for me. So you get the impression here, okay? Nebuchadnezzar is deadly serious, deadly serious. And he is not looking for some kind of horoscope, fortune cookie, vague general nonsense. Tell me what it is. And um, well, they responded to him, the astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth. Now I want you to notice this. This is really important. There is king. There is no one on earth. King, there is is no human on planet earth who can do what you are asking. There is no king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, of any enchanter, or any astrologer. Now look what he says. What the king is asking for is too difficult. King, no one. There is no human who can do the thing that you're asking, except the gods, and they do not live among humans. In other words, you see what they're saying. There is no human who can do what you're asking. It would take, king, it would take divine intervention. It would take an act of God, which is very fascinating. So you can imagine, knowing what you know about King Nebuchadnezzar, how he probably felt about this answer, right? And uh, so, yeah, sure enough, look at the next verse. This made the king so angry And made him so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. Just kill them all. So the decree, now look at this. The decree was issued to put the wise men to death and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends who were part of the wise men to also put them to death. So I want you to see how serious the situation is. When this happens, Nebuchadnezzar isn't like, look, everyone in the wise man department, the whole Magi department is fired. You all need to find a new job. That's not what he does. He actually passes a law. He declares a decree. Every wise man is going to die. And then the Bible tells us this next thing. The Bible says that after this, when Arioch, who was the commander of the king's guard, had gone out, now why was he going out? To find Daniel and put him to death, along with the wise men. Daniel spoke to him, now notice this, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Daniel spoke to him and he had wisdom and he had tact. And he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went into the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So once you notice this, Ariok comes to literally execute Daniel, to take him to his execution. And Daniel speaks with wisdom and tact. And he says, why did the king do this? And then he ends up gaining an audience with the king. Now, how did he do that? I'm not sure, but I'm guessing it probably had something to do with his wisdom and his tact. And he was able to come into the king, and he said to the king, notice what he says, he says, can you give me some time, and I will interpret your dream. Give me a little bit of time, and I will interpret your dream. Now, why was Daniel able to say that? Why could Daniel tell the king, I can interpret your dream, just give me some time? Now, that might seem like an interesting thing to say, uh, but actually, we know why Daniel could say this. Some of you might remember if you were here uh, last week in Daniel chapter one, verse 17. If you have your Bible open, you can just look back to it right now. In Daniel chapter one, verse 17, we actually are told a really interesting little detail about Daniel. And the Bible tells us that God had given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions. That's what the Bible actually tells us. Now, I know for a lot of us, and myself included, when I read that, there's all kinds of questions that pop into my mind. I'm like, what does that even mean? And I I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But for some reason, we are told in this time and this space in history, God had somehow given Daniel this unbelievable ability to be able to interpret dreams and to interpret visions. But here's what I want you to notice. So Daniel says, give me some time. The king gives him time. Watch what happens next, because this is where I really want us to press in. Then Daniel returned to his house after this conversation with the king, and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember these three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They also were Israelites along with Daniel. They would have worshipped the same God, Yahweh, that Daniel would have worshipped. They also were given new names. Their new names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you guys might remember these three guys. So he goes to them, and then he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, again, here's where I really want us to press in, because I believe that what we see in these verses right here is something that is deeply relevant, and I believe, honestly, is deeply instructive for us here today. I think it's deeply instructive. And what's that? I want you to notice that when Daniel finds himself in a place of incredible uncertainty, When Daniel finds himself in a place of incredible anxiety, when Daniel finds himself in a place where there is real fear and there is real uncertainty about what the future holds, do you notice, this is so key, do you notice what his first move is? Do you notice what what is his first response? Well, notice what it's not. Okay, so Daniel's first response is not this. He doesn't hear the king say, I'm gonna execute everybody and if you guys don't get my dream right, you're out. The first thing Daniel does not do is he does not run to his friends and he doesn't say, listen, guys, here's the thing. The king is crazy, he is tired, and he is serious and he's gonna kill all of us. And so listen, you guys, we, we need to pull an all-nighter tonight and we need to get the whole Magi department together and we need to get to the library, and we need to go through every book on dream interpretation that we have. We need to exhaust every ounce of human wisdom that we have to find the answer to this problem, because if we don't come up with some kind of creative solution, if we don't exercise the best and the brightest and and the best of our ingenuity to try to maneuver a way out of this, dude, we are toast. That's not what he does. Daniel doesn't do this. He doesn't come to his friends and say, you guys, the king is crazy and he's sleep deprived and he's gonna kill us. But somehow I was able to convince him to give us a little bit of time so we have a whole night. So I think if we pack our stuff now and we make a run for it, there's a good chance we might be able to outrun him. He doesn't do that either. What is Daniel's first response in the midst of this situation? Well, here it is right here. Daniel went to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He went to the other believers, the other followers of Yahweh, and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. It's the very first thing he does. He says, you guys, we have to pray. We gotta pray, and we've gotta plead. Now, let me just, let me just say something. Some of you guys are um, note takers, so maybe you're taking notes, or maybe you're the kind of person who likes to mark up your Bible. I like to do that, circle things. I want you to, uh, if you can, if you're a note taker, I want you to highlight take a note, circle, underline, put an asterisk next to, do something to highlight this little term, God of heaven, this little phrase, God of heaven. I actually think that that's deeply significant. And I'll tell you why here in just a second. Keep your eyes out for this term, God of heaven. It's gonna show up over and over again in Daniel chapter two. But he says, you guys, we gotta plead to the God of heaven. Now, Now, here's what I want you to notice. Okay, here in Daniel chapter two, what do you see? You see a crazed king crazed, sleep-deprived king who basically just passed an edict that said that all of the wise men are going to be killed. So Daniel and all of his friends and all of the, the people who work with him in Babylon are about to be executed. And Daniel's first response in that moment, Daniel's first response is to go directly to God. That is his first response, is to gather God's people to pray. And I think what this does is it actually reveals to us, it helps peel back a little bit of what's happening in the situation to show us what does, what does it look like to live a life of resolve? How does this resolve that Daniel and his friends showed in Daniel chapter one, how does it practically show up in their life? I think one of the ways that we're gonna see that is that Daniel and his friends were resolved to pray as a first response and not a last resort. How does the resolve show up? I think it shows up this way. It shows up that prayer is a first response and not a last resort. In the situations and the times that we find ourselves in our lives. Now, again, I think this is very instructive for us. I think it's very instructive. You know, I think, uh, quite honestly, for many of us who follow Jesus, this is, this is not our natural instinct. We, we actually got this one backwards in a lot of ways. And I think, I think it shows up a lot of different ways. So, so when we find ourselves in times and places where, where, where the anxiety is high, when the uncertainty is there, when the tension is real, when the fears are, are, are big, I think sometimes when we find ourselves in situations like that, what we tend to do, maybe this, this isn't you, but I can say that I know that this is true of me. What I tend to do is I tend to want to exhaust every available human resource that I have to try to either find an answer or a solution or to gain control of the situation. And so what do we often do? We often run and consult Every person that we know, every website that we can find, we will exhaust every ounce of creativity and imaginative energy that we have. We will oftentimes lay in bed at night and not sleep because we will just play through anxiously every possible outcome of how the scenario could go so that we could somehow find an answer or gain control over the situation. That tends to be the way that we operate. And what's interesting is it seems like a lot of times that only after, it's only after we have exhausted every available resource, that then and only then will we then come to God and say, well, I guess I should just now pray. And I'll be honest, you can hear it in the way we talk sometimes, can't you? You guys ever hear the way we talk? We'll say, things, we'll say it like this. We'll say things like, well, man, I tried, tried everything I know how, you know, I just, I, 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 I talked to this person, I went to this website, I talked to, the, you know, I did this, I did that, I thought, I laid in bed for nights just, think mulling over it, thinking about it. There's no, I guess there's nothing There's nothing left for me to do. I guess the only thing left to do is what? Pray. I don't know why I'm doing that, but that's, I guess the only thing left is we should just, I guess that's all we can do is just hope and pray. So that's all we had to do left. I've done everything I know how, and that's all that's left. Why is it that Daniel, in the most fearful and the most anxiety-ridden moment of this entire book so far. And the first response that he and his friends do is he says, we have to pray. We have to pray now. We can't waste another moment. We gotta get right to prayer. Why is that? Can I tell you why I think that is? Can I tell you why? I, because I believe this is true. Here's what I believe. I believe that where we turn first reveals our place of deepest faith. Uh, this is what I believe. I believe the reason that Daniel and his friends immediately go to prayer is because that is, there is something that's inside of them that they believe, they actually believe that God is the one who can actually make things happen. God is the one who can actually change things. And here's what I believe about you and I. I think that where we turn first, where we go first, will reveal to us the greatest place of our faith. I actually think in some ways it's kind of helpful because where we turn first actually exposes to us. It shows us. It shows us where our true faith lies. Where do we actually believe that power is held? Where do we actually think that things can happen and things can change? And I believe where we turn first oftentimes reveals our place of greatest faith. I love the way author Philip Yancey put it. He wrote an awesome book on prayer that I would really commend to you. It's called Prayer Doesn't Make Any Difference, which is a really big question that a lot of people ask. And I love what he says here. He says, prayer is to the skeptic a delusion. It's a waste of time. Why would you spend any time praying? But to the believer, the person who actually has trust and faith in God, it represents perhaps the most important use of time. And I think because of this, this should cause us to really ask an important and exposing question. I think the exposing question is, what is my first response? I think this is a good question for us to think through, and I'm not throwing this at you for a guilt trip. I just think it's honestly a very important question, because if it's true that where I turn first reveals my greatest place of faith, I think we owe it to ourselves to know, what is that? What is that, right? So for example, what is my first response? When I encounter challenging people, when I experience tense relationships, when I'm navigating through relational tension or or so, where, where, where's the first place that I go? Where do I go for advice? Where do I go? What's the first place that I go? To try to seek guidance or wisdom in that scenario. Um, if I'm facing a challenging circumstance, if there's anxiety or uncertainty or there's a big decision I have to make, what, what is the first place I tend to go? Where, where's the first place I'm inclined to go? How about this one? When my family, when my community or even our society is in desperate, divided, or uncertain situations, we certainly know something about that. What tends to be our first response? Where do we tend to go first? What is is the inclination of our heart to go first in these situations? Or how about this one? When laws are decreed that are unethical or are harmful to others. You guys, Daniel was no stranger to these things. Daniel, literally, the king issued a decree that was threatening the lives of Daniel and all of his friends. He literally passed a law to kill all of them. What do you do when, when the, the systems of this world are, are passing edicts and decrees that are absolutely antithetical to the things that are near and dear to the heart of God? What do you do? Where's the first place you go in situations like this? When there's injustice, when we see injustice, what's the first place that we go? Now, let me just be clear here. What I'm not advocating for is inactivity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, well, are you, just, are you just saying that like all we do is just sit around and pray all the time? That's it? We pray and pray, we never do anything? Is that what you're talking about? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. I, I'm not advocating for inactivity at all. I don't think Daniel is advocating for inactivity. Daniel worked in the Babylonian government for crying out loud. He was very involved. All I'm asking is, what is the first response? Because, again, I believe that where we turn first reveals our place of greatest faith. So Daniel and his friends, they immediately go to prayer first. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. Okay, so look at verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So amazingly, here's what happens. Now, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't always happen this way. But they pray, and God happens to just answer the prayer exactly like they were asking him to do it. It doesn't always happen. And when that doesn't happen, by the way, uh, that's actually a piece of what we're going to talk about next week. There's there's something that comes out next week. But notice in this passage, they pray, and God gives them an answer. He gives them the vision. And Daniel's response was that he praised the God of heaven. So you're actually going to see in the text, Daniel actually breaks into a spontaneous praise prayer of thanksgiving to God. It's, it's awesome. You can see it there. What happens next is this dude, Arioch comes to Daniel, and he takes Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want to pick it up here in verse 26. So watch what happens. This is Daniel now standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so you got to get this picture in your mind because this is so awesome. All right, so Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king asks Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar, which if you were here last week, you remember why that's the case. He says to Daniel, so just get this picture in your mind. Nebuchadnezzar, sleep deprived, right? Tired dude, angry dude. Says to Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel, I have given you time. Are you able to tell me what my dream is? Now, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I gotta say, knowing what we know about King Nebuchadnezzar, and knowing about the options that he had previously given to his people, I'm just guessing that if I was in Daniel's shoes and this man just asked me this sleep-deprived king, just asked me this question: can you interpret the dream? The first words out of my mouth should probably be something like, Yes. And I'm guessing that, like, can you interpret my dream? Yes, sir. Yes, I can. I <laughs> want you to watch Daniel's response. Daniel's so awesome. Daniel, can you tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? No. <laughs> Daniel's first answer to the king of Babylon, No. First words out of his mouth, no. Then he elaborates. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. This is what he says. He says, king, there's no one on earth. There's no one on earth who can do the thing that you are asking, king. He actually, here you see that he gives the same admission that the other wise men and enchanters and astrologers said. He said, no one can do this. But then Daniel adds something. Daniel and you guys, this is so bold. Look what Daniel says. He says, there's no wise men, no enchanter king, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God who is in heaven. He reveals mysteries, and he, he's the one who is showing you King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream meant. Way to go, Daniel. Man, that's bold. Listen, that's respectful, that's honest, that's true. And Daniel says to him, no, but there's a king. There is a God. There is a God who is in heaven. There's a God. Now, this is a powerful answer, by the way. Remember how I told you God in heaven, how I said that's really important? Remember how I said back in verse 18, Daniel and his friends plead for mercy to the God of heaven? Now, why is that so important? Okay, so here's, here's what's going on. Here's why I think that's so important. You will notice if you read the Bible, God has given a lot of different titles and he has given a lot of different names. And commentators will point out that the reason that God is often given a lot of different titles is because those titles are intended to draw out a certain aspect of God's character. It's supposed to tell you something about who God is. So what does it mean when it calls him the God of heaven? Well, commentators will say, and I, I like the way one commentator put it, I'll just quote him. He said, God of heaven was used to describe the dominion of God's authority and God's power. That's what that term was used to mean. So in other words, the term God of heaven was not just speaking about the place that God dwelt. It was actually speaking of the jurisdiction of God's dominion. What is the umbrella of authority? What is the range in which God has authority over? What is the jurisdiction of God's dominion? And the answer to that question is, he is the God of heaven. And the word heaven, this is where it gets a little complicated. The word heaven, when you and I think of heaven, a lot of times we think like heaven is that place where you go after you die. It's the place where God lives and it has nothing to do with us here on earth. But that's actually not what the term means. The word heaven in a very general sense just means everything. It means everything that's been created. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what's the idea? The idea is that God has dominion over everything. So to make it even more clear, maybe I can put it to you this way. Back to Google Maps, King Nebuchadnezzar had dominion. He had jurisdiction over a certain geographical region in time and space and history. But what Daniel says and what he says to his friends and what he says to King Nebuchadnezzar is he says, there is a God of heaven. There is a God who has dominion too, King, but not just over this little space. He has dominion over everything. And so if I could just zoom back a little bit, this is as far back as Google Maps will let me go. You can see that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, when you zoom out, all of a sudden, it becomes pretty insignificant compared to God's jurisdiction and his reign. Why is it that Daniel and his friends, that their first response is to pray as a first response, not a last resort? Can I tell you why? I don't don't think it's just because Daniel and his friends believe something about prayer. I think it's more because they believe something about God. And when you believe that there is a God in heaven, there is one who has jurisdiction and sovereignty over all the events that happen on earth. The only natural and obvious response is that you pray, is that you pray because there is a God in heaven. So let me summarize what happens at the end here of this story and I'll I'll, I'll summarize it for time's sake. But Daniel tells him the dream. He he, he He says to King Nebuchadnezzar, here's the dream that you had. And he explains it to him. And then he goes on to interpret it. And uh, the dream is so important that I'm gonna try to summarize it for you because it's so significant. So here's what he says to to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you had this dream. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar, in this dream, what you saw was you saw this giant statue. There was this big statue. And uh, this is an artist rendition of that statue. And he says, this statue was made of all kinds of different materials. So it had a head of gold and it had, you know, its chest and its arms were made of silver and then its middle was made of bronze and then its legs were made of iron. He says, you had this dream of this, this, crazy, this crazy statue. And then Daniel goes on to interpret. He says, that's what you saw. He says, now let me tell you what it means. God's gonna tell you what it means. And he says, here's what it is. This statue represents every man-made kingdom on this earth. Every man-made kingdom Every man-made government system on this earth is represented in this statue. And so he goes on to interpret it. And he says, Dan, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, that head of gold, he says, that's you, that's Babylon. And he says, right now, you are the mega power of this world. He says, but here's the thing, king, after you, there's going to be another kingdom that's going to come. And he says, and that kingdom is going to be one that is of the chest and arms of silver. And Daniel actually explains this. He says, what's gonna come after you is Babylon is gonna be overtaken by the Medo-Persians. And by the way, that is exactly what you see happen in history, is Babylon is overtaken by the Medo-Persians. And then he says this, he says, and then after that, there's gonna come another kingdom on earth. There's gonna be another mega power and it's gonna be Greece. And he says that this is gonna be the belly and thighs of bronze. And he says, and after Greece, there's going to come another one. It's gonna be legs of iron. Now, Daniel doesn't tell us explicitly what it is, but history does that after Greece comes, comes Rome. And of course, iron is the strongest of all of the materials that are mentioned. Rome was by far the most powerful of all the kingdoms that are listed. And then at the end, he says that the feet are a clay iron mixture. Basically, the iron from Rome is going to be shattered and scattered into multiple kingdoms throughout the world. That's what he says. So he gives this interpretation, but then this is the most important part of the vision. This is the most important part of the dream. Verse 34, Daniel says to the king, He says, while you were dreaming, you were watching this, there was a rock that was cut out, but it was not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a weird dream. He's like, there's this statue with these different materials. And then there's this rock that is not cut from human hands, whatever that means. And he says, and this thing comes crashing in, I don't know, like a meteorite or something. And it just blows the thing to pieces. And then he says, and then this rock starts small, but grows into a giant mountain that covers the whole world. Bizarre dream. What does it mean? Well, Daniel gives the interpretation. And this is what Daniel says in verse 44. In the time of those kings, in those days, in the future... The God of heaven is gonna set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now, there it is again. The God of heaven is going to establish a kingdom that's gonna last forever. And notice what he says about this. He says, it will not be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and it will bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that's cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold into pieces. Now, what's interesting is Daniel actually tells Nebuchadnezzar this is gonna happen in the future. And do you know what history shows us? After Babylon, just like Daniel says, comes the Medo-Persians, and the Medo-Persians rule the earth for about rule the ancient world for about 200 years. After the Medo-Persians comes the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire is the mega power on earth for about 200 years. After that comes Rome, and Rome is by far the strongest of all the kingdoms. It lasts for 500 years in the east and 1,500 years in the west, still continuing in a broken kind of state. Uh, the Roman Kingdom is divided. But here's what's interesting: during the time of Rome we are told 600 years after Daniel that there is a king who was born. There's another king who was born. But interestingly, this king came and spoke of a kingdom that was not made by human hands. He spoke of a kingdom that was not of this earth. He spoke of a kingdom that was not confined to any of the earth's government systems or not to a geographical landscape. He talked about a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that would rule the hearts and the minds, the souls, the souls. Of human beings. And interestingly, when this king came, this king did not come with all the prestige and extravagance of the world. He didn't come with bronze or silver or gold. In fact, the Bible's going to tell us that this king was born into a humble circumstance. Listen, he never owned a home and he never fielded an army. Yet the Bible's going to tell us that this king established a kingdom, one that would bring all other kingdoms to an end and itself would endure forever. This king came to establish a kingdom that started as a small rock but grew into a mountain that eventually would cover the entire world. It would eventually would cover the whole globe over the span of over 2,000 years. This is a king whose kingdom would start, you can put it this way, as a tiny mustard seed, but eventually would grow to be the biggest plant in the garden. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What is the point of Daniel? Here's the point. There is a God in heaven. There is a king in heaven. And Jesus is his name. Do you know this king? Do you know this king? There there is a king whose kingdom will outlast and overshadow all of the Nebuchadnezzar's and all of the Babylon's that the world will ever see. And Daniel tells the king, This is the meaning of your dream. Earlier, I was telling you guys about the toilet bowl. Remember that? And um, it's an interesting question. How, How do you fight a current for an entire lifetime? How do you do that? How do you find the strength to fight it? I mean, maybe you can do it for a little bit. How do you do it forever? How do you do it for a lifetime? Can I give you what I think the answer is? I think we actually see it right here in Daniel. I think the way that you fight a current is that you have to anchor yourself to something that is permanent. That's how you do it. The way that you fight a current is you don't just grit your teeth and try harder to resist the current. That's not how you do it. That's not how Daniel do it, did it. Do you know how you fight the current? You plant yourself onto something that is permanent, on something that is secure, on something that is eternal. How is it that Daniel and his friends were able to fight the current of the Babylonian culture for an entire lifetime? It's because they had a vision for a kingdom that never end. And they had a vision of a king who was the true king over all kingdoms on the earth. And when they rested and they put their hope in him, it allowed them to stay steady and firmly planted in the place where they lived. To put, it, to put it just very straightforward to you, I believe this. I believe that when the kings and the kingdoms of this earth have ultimate, when we believe that the kings and the kingdoms of this earth have ultimate power and have ultimate say over our destiny, I think you will always be in a place of perpetual anxiety and fear. I think you're always gonna find yourself getting swept away into the ever-changing currents of the culture around us because the kingdoms of this earth come and go and ebb and flow and as long as we believe that the systems of this world and the, the, the political scheme of this world is what ultimately has say over our destiny, if we believe that, then our emotional well-being is always gonna be hinged on the circumstances that we see around us and on what we see in our newsfeed. How do you remain strong when the, when, when, when the current is so strong, how do you remain steadfast? I think here's how you do it. You have to anchor yourself in something that is eternal. You have to anchor yourself into a king who will last forever. That's what you see in Daniel. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do, I wanna read the last couple of verses, and the, I love how the story ends. The Bible says, After this, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, and he paid him honor, and he ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. So the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. I love that. Nebuchadnezzar says, man, your God is the true God and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And the Bible says, then the king placed Daniel in a high position and he lavished many gifts on him. He made him the ruler over the entire province of Babylon and he placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Can I, can I tell you what I think Daniel chapter two? I think Daniel chapter two is an awesome example of actually what we see God tell his people in Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, God actually told his people when they went into exile. He said this, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says to those I carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. That would be Daniel and his friends. He said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Seek peace and seek the prosperity of the world that you live in, which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, not against it, pray for it. Because if it prospers, then you also will prosper. What do you see in Daniel? Here's what you see. Because of Daniel and his friends resolve faith, and because of their resolve to pray as a first response and not a last resort, what was the result? You actually see God used Daniel and his friends in such a way that people who don't know God in Babylon are introduced to the God of the universe. You actually see, because of their resolve, you see that people literally lives were saved. The lives of these men who were going to be killed by the king who issued this unbelievable decree was reversed because of what you see with Daniel and his friends. And why? Because of their resolved faith and their commitment to follow him. And, and here's the crazy thing. When you look at the book of Daniel, what do you see? How did they do this? It wasn't because they wanted to retaliate. That's not what it was. It wasn't because they wanted to fight back and fight the system. That's not what you see. And it wasn't because they assimilated. It wasn't because they just gave in and said, well, this is what the culture's doing. This is what we're doing. They didn't do either. They didn't retaliate and they didn't assimilate. What you see is that they illuminated. They stood out like, like light in a dark place. And so because of that, I think that um, as a very practical kind of takeaway, we said that we wanted to try to create some ways for us, for those of us who are part of this church, to be people pray as a first response and not a last resort. And so I want to point you just to a few practical ways that you can do that. If you go to our website, you actually find a number of prayer opportunities that we've kind of set up. Um, And this is just a way for us to actually practice some of the things that we're talking about, that we actually want to practice the things that we're preaching to be people who pray as a first response and not a last resort. So these are some opportunities for you to take advantage of, just opportunities. You don't have to do all of them, but maybe some of them. And so let me just explain a few. At the bottom um, we're this Friday from noon to 1230, uh, we're gonna have a worship and prayer time right here in the auditorium. And again, this is the time for us to worship together, but it's also a time for us just to pray as a first response. And uh, we wanna be people who pray together and pray for our community and pray for our world and pray about everything. That's who we wanna be. And so this is an awesome opportunity. If you're available, we'd love to just come together and pray in, in response to what we just read in Daniel. Um, we also have a prayer, uh, Bible camp prayer guide. So Bible camp is actually right around the corner. And you guys know for us here that we have such a strong desire to make a serious spiritual investment in the next generation. Bible camp is such an awesome way to do that. So we have a 21 day prayer guide that you can get on our website or you can get at the Welcome Center. And we wanna ask you if you would just join us in praying specifically for things as we're getting ready for Bible camp. I think that would be awesome. We just don't wanna miss an opportunity to pray about those things. And then lastly, I just wanna mention the week of prayer. So we've actually designed something this week, just this week, this week only, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We are asking the people of our church if you would collectively join us in a week of prayer. Okay. Now, the whole heart is we want you to be able to pray from wherever you are at any time so that you can do that. So what you can do is if you go to the website or you go to the Welcome Center, uh, if you go to our website, if you click on the prayer opportunities, it'll take you to a place that looks like this. Each day, we have picked a different theme of things that we're asking all of God's people to pray for. Okay, so for example, like Monday, it's all about uh, thanks. It's all about thanks and praise. Then there's some days in there, like for example, one of the days is all about praying for our community and praying for our world, which we know desperately needs our prayers. Desperately. And we wanna be people that our first response is that we pray, is that we go to the God of heaven about the things that we see. And so you'll see that on our website, five days of prayer, We actually have had a chance over the past couple of weeks to reach out to our community leaders. We've reached out to some government leaders. We've reached out to our educators. We've reached out to the superintendents of our school systems. Uh, We've reached out to the law enforcement in our area. We have reached out to our ministry partners and we have just asked them, what are the ways that we can be praying for and with you? And we've gathered a whole bunch of prayer requests and we're gonna put those on the website so that we can pray together as a first response Uh, to the community and to the world that we live in. You'll also notice one last thing I'll mention. It says click here to Zoom. Uh, Every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, from 6.30 a.m. to 7 o'clock a.m., half an hour. I know for some of you, that's very early. Uh, For some of you, you're like, I've already been up for three hours, you know, chewing bullets. I don't know why, that's just that. So, um, but if you click on that at 6.30, there will be people that will be there together. Anyone who wants to come in, you can Zoom in even if you're on your drive to work, zoom in, and uh, we'd love to just, to just have you on that call and be a way for us to pray together. But I hope you get the heart. The heart is that we collectively want to be a group of people who pray as a first response and not a last resort because we believe that there is a God in heaven. That's right. But Jesus, we just wanna say thank you for the reality that there is a king, a true king that overcomes and overlasts and overshadows all the kingdoms of this earth, and Jesus, that's you. But your kingdom is a kingdom that is ruled. It's a kingdom that's ruled by love. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom that is marked by servanthood. And it's a kingdom, it's a kingdom that will be an eternal one. And so Father, I thank you that you've given us a vision for something that's permanent and strong in the midst of a society and a world that is ever-changing, that is ever swirling. And so, Father, I pray that you would help those of us who follow you to just firmly plant ourselves in the eternal reality of who you are. I pray for some who maybe don't know you, who are here today, God, that they would surrender their life to the true king and find that you're good and find that you love us. So I pray that the songs that we sing would become the prayers that we offer to you in these next moments, and we ask it in Jesus' name.